In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Who was this? Ezra's not that tall. What huh? the hell was that aspirational mic placement? I don't know. You can't you can't trust Ezra. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Here today with Julia Belouz and Brian Resnick from the science team, as well as Dara Lind. Uh, it has definitely been like a number of days since we last recorded a podcast. Yes, definitely. Time, so much time. Time has passed. We're not, um, you know, just banking episodes on, on evergreen topics. Meanwhile, amazingly, both Matt and I are recording this podcast despite the fact that both of us are on vacation right now. Yes, it's, it's miraculous. No. Uh, so we have been talking about broaching this this subject for a while because, you know, on The Weeds, we often talk about different kinds of, of studies and papers and things in social science. Uh, we get a lot of sort of interesting empirical results that, you know, smart people kind of cook up with different experimental designs and we talk about them. And then, you know, we kind of just like move on. You know, we like have a good discussion about like what's true. And then we just kind of drop the subject and I guess this turns out to be, like, not great scientific practice. Turns right? out. <laughs> Oftentimes, things are discovered in academic studies. And then when people look back, it's maybe not true. They get undiscovered. Right. And this or, is where they're getting, called... like, asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Hashtag so, fake news, fake science. Ooh. But so, ooh, fake news. So, I mean, this is what's called replication, right? It's like, I do an experiment and say I have a result. And in theory, like, you should go be able to do it and get the same result. Try to reproduce the result. Right. Yeah. Like, if it's a real thing that exists in the world and not just, like, a thing that I observed in the past tense during this one time that I ran my study... Using this these particular set of methods on a particular group of people, um, yeah, you want to try to see whether you can reproduce the findings or not, and that's kind of, you know, one of the bedrock ideas in the scientific method that you don't just run a study once; you try to run it multiple times in different people at in different settings and see whether the results reproduce. And so there's this idea that there is a replication crisis. I have heard that phrase. Yes. Yes. So, I have read that phrase on Vox.com. Yeah, you've probably read You can read. sort of intuit a little what that might mean, but like, can you explain, like, what, right, like how what's did this we, about? How, how did we, you know, if, if this is one of the bedrock principles of the scientific method, like as Julia was saying, how did we get to a point where the scientific community has like suddenly started, you know, like decided that it has a problem here? Yes, I think what, what we're hearing about today, a lot of it 
You know, we're hearing about the power pose study is not reproducing or the marshmallow test, which Brian has, has written so nicely about recently. But a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of what we think about now is a replication crisis. Like it has its origins in discussions that have been happening for decades in medicine. So it kind of hit the mainstream more recently, but like, you know, in the 80s and 90s, people in the medical community were talking about how, you know, you really can't trust the results of single studies and that we needed to build systems around how to bring together the results of many studies and systematic reviews and make sure our decisions were based on that. Or do you guys know the name John Yanides? Has he gone mainstream? I do not, not know. So he's like for us. A, yeah, he's big in our world. He's <laughs> huge. He's like yeah. the rock star of um, replication. And he published his seminal paper in, the two, I think, 2005 called Why Most Published Research Findings Are Wrong. And he uses a mathematical model to show why, because of researcher bias, because of publication bias, or the fact that what gets published tends to be positive and splashy findings and not necessarily negative findings or, you know. Yeah. And overall, the story is that researchers have had too much freedom in constructing their tests and analyzing their results. So a lot of things that used to be pretty commonplace in social science are now seen as being really bad practice. Like, it used to be pretty common where if you were doing a study and for each participant, you know, you're just looking to see when you've reached a statistically significant result and you can stop the study once you've reached a statistically significant result. Like, that is, uh, you know, the term you might have heard sometimes is called p-hacking, and it's like these... Uh, all sorts of techniques that you can use implicitly. And a lot of these things happen like not because people want to do fraudulent work, just because they have been common practice and, and they kind of feel intuitively correct. Like, why would you add more participants to a study where you already got the result? And a lot of these things crystallize. Like, in around 2010, 2011, especially, there was this paper that was published uh, in, in a psychological journal that found evidence for precognition, so evidence that people could observe something before it happened. And this paper used all the commonly used methods in, in psychology. Like there was nothing like methodologically wrong with it in terms of like what everyone in the field was doing. But yeah, this this finding was ridiculous. And that kind of inspired, like there's a lot of threads to the story. Enides is one of them. Biomedicine is one of them. And social science, like that paper kind of inspired this introspection and looking at methods and looking at how common practices like stopping experiments once you've reached statistical significance, how like just using 40 participants from Harvard in a you know an experimental study is actually a recipe for a false positive. Um, not specifically from Harvard, but you know just uh, 40. So this is know. like a commonplace yeah. thing, right? So you're right. you're an academic. Yeah. You want to do an experiment. You would like to like get the experiment done. Right. And you yeah. don't want to have to pay like a gajillion dollars to people who are going to have to like take time off yeah. of work and like finding people is hard. So studying the undergrads at the institution where you happen to work yeah. is like the easiest way to get an experiment. Yeah, there's other things too. Like you can collect data on multiple variables. Let's say I study you or I'm studying this class of uh, college students and, you know, we're studying both like how they feel about like self-esteem and we're studying like how they, uh, you know, how happy they are. 
let's say our test like boosts self-esteem but doesn't do anything for happiness. In the past, it's been like okay to forget about happiness and just say like, oh, we found the statistically significant result for self-esteem. As but if you had gone in saying, gee, self-esteem is really what we're interested in here exactly. rather than just kind of like data mining. Yeah. So like when I said freedom before, like there has been a lot of freedom in, in science and social science and biomedicine to kind of choose your own path through both designing the experiment and data collection. And at each point where you're choosing something like that, you are introducing the risk of finding a false positive. You're probably increasing the risk of finding a false positive. And so, like, there's just been this movement in the last several years also really crystallizing around a 2015 article in Science where 100 psychological papers were attempted replication and only 40% of them passed, like, really crystallizing this idea that we need to get science on a surer footing. And it's not like a lot of these studies are wrong or it's not necessarily that, um, you know, everything you've read in a scientific magazine or newspaper is wrong, but just there is a movement now to reevaluate and reassess now that the fields have realized that their methods haven't been as rigorous as they could been. Now it's time to bring that rigor. I like, kind of want to dig into like why this might be happening. Like, Julia, you'd mentioned publication bias. I'm like, my understanding is that the reason that scientific publications are so, like, it takes so long to get a study published and all of that is that they're trying to make sure that everything is as rigorous as possible. Like, it kind of sounds like the story you guys are telling is that a researcher feels pressured to find, like, a really sexy, splashy finding and is therefore cutting all of these scientific corners that they might not otherwise cut. How did that happen? Yeah, there are so, so many factors that play a role. And uh, you have to kind of think about the broader incentive structure in science. So if you want to have a career as an academic, you need to be published in high-impact journals. High-impact journals tend to prioritize findings that, yeah, are novel, that are splashy. Some are, and especially now, they're publishing replication studies, but in general, they want something that's, you know, spicy and new. And so um, if you are trying to get a job at a university and you're evaluated for that job, you have to have a certain publication track record. There's an incentive to like keep going on a path that has shown some positive results. So mm. you get a positive result and then you keep getting more and more and more. It's funny too that, I mean, it's not funny, that even some meta-analyses, perhaps you've heard that a good way to evaluate science is to get all the studies done on a topic and group them all together and to see, you know, where the evidence lies. Uh, you know, we talk about systematic reviews, but if they're not done correctly and if you don't account for tests for publication bias, which is this thing that, you know, what goes into journals tend to only be the, like the happy results and the, the results that make you look good as a scientist and all the other ones you can just stash away in a file drawer. Like actually those meta reviews, a lot of them are, they, they won't reveal the truth that maybe the effect that researchers have been chasing aren't there because the literature is so biased to, to positive. So, so this is like, if I do a study and I'm like, okay, do almonds cure cancer? And Absolutely. I run it and like the people who ate the almonds, like it didn't cure cancer. That's like, that's boring. I, and I can't get that published. But if enough people do enough little almond experiments and one of them, it does cure cancer. Or if I could get that written up right. and it's like, oh my God, almonds cure cancer. And then your meta-analysis of the almonds literature, you might find three studies that showed that the almonds cure cancer because the 7 million studies in which they didn't, like, nobody publishes. Or right? you find three studies in which, like, almonds are shown to 
give you like stronger hair and nails and to improve digestive functioning. And what they won't tell you is that all of those studies started out as can almonds cure cancer? And those are the few positives they found. Thing, well, because yeah. this is what, Brian, where you were talking about this, right? It's like studying more than one variable, mm-hmm. right? So it's like if you feed almonds to a control group, and then you study a million different variables. Yeah. Right? Like, it's, there's going to be something. And this is big in clinical trials, too, right? Yeah, I think that's one thing that is important to differentiate. I think psychology is probably now talking about pre-registering yes. um, your protocol. So, like, you know, before you run a study, you have to say, this is what I'm studying. These are what, what Brian was describing. These are the, the outcomes that I'm most interested in. And so medicine, again, was kind of has been doing this. For years, so there's something called clinicaltrials.gov, where researchers are supposed to register their, you know, their plan for whatever the study is going to be for all the world to see. However, it still doesn't happen in many cases, and there's this neat little thing that you can see on their website. Um, you can look at the editing history of these registries, and you see that people go back and edit what their protocols were after the fact. So. Um, that still happens. So and, wait, so you, so you pre-register, but you're allowed to actually change it? To change it, yeah. That, so it's, that, that seems sound like great. defeating the purpose of <laughs> but, but it. But, but, but I should say that there, yeah, like as part of this whole reform movement, there is a big push to, to improve things, and a lot of people are doing better now than they have. So I think that like one thing that's important to remember, this crisis is actually a good thing. So we're seeing like, Science is an imperfect human system, and there are increasingly different efforts and measures being put in place to have these checks and balances that we need. So a lot of what you're talking about are kind of these broad trends, but it seems like in how this has come to light, it's been kind of a dis- – like it's happened in kind of one area of science and then another. Like how has that progression happened? And are we at a point now where like everybody in science and social science is dealing with their own replication crises, or are there places where it's still yet to hit? The replication crisis is replicating. Replication Uh, (laughs) crisis on infinite Earths. Yeah. Uh, One thing I think, um, just as my opinion and like reading a lot of this this research and reading a lot of this news is that social scientists, at least for me, seem to be like really um, transparent and public and really like kind of like the the outward face of this – replication and we can also call it the open science movement like open science is the answer to replication problems mm-hmm. and so like a lot of the studies you've been hearing about the marshmallow test ego depletion which is like this idea that our willpower is uh, a finite source um, these ideas that haven't really endured replication like they're kind of big pop culture ideas you've probably read them you know about in like big glossy magazines they're the types of things that work their way into self-help books they like they really pr- ted pervade talks. ted talks and also education education policy has been really powerfully shaped by psychological studies so these things we encounter them all the time and and so like it might be a little misleading to think like there's an extra problem in psychology just because we just hear about this so much and there seems to be like a real effort in psychology and a real enthusiasm around particularly some younger psychologists who really want to do this work in correcting the record, which is really cool to see and report on. But yeah, there there are other replication crises in other uh, areas of science. Yeah, like cell studies, animal studies, obviously medical, psychology, 
Yeah, many, many areas. Yeah, there was even, um, I remember there was another paper looking at trying to replicate 100 uh, studies in economics. And economics did a little bit better than psychology. I think 60% of the papers in that effort replicated. But I think, and also that going back to what Julia was talking about, John Edenides, who was writing about this in 2005, just like these, the cultural practices and the pressures that make it more likely that false positives get into the literature are are just in academia you know and and they and there's no one story in the replication crisis as as we can call it uh you know it, it looks different in medicine it looks different in in psychology it looks different you know in whatever i'm sure chemistry or you know animal studies and Julia and I, uh, a few years ago, we, we did this survey of, uh, we heard from 250 scientists across the country, actually probably across the world, and just asking them, where are the big problems in science? And the biggest thing that we came across is that institutions of science don't reward failures. They don't reward rigorous failures. People are afraid of rigorous failures. I remember one of the- What, what does that mean? Rigorous failure. So, like you've done all the work, you've pre-registered your your study. Your study is not subjected to p hacking. You know, you dotted all the i's, you crossed all the t's. But sometimes when you do that, the thing you learn, the truth you learn, is is that there is nothing there. And we shouldn't even call those failures. But you know, and right, like, isn't that the whole point of like the way you phrase your hypothesis is that either like you do see an effect or you don't, and either way you've identified what's going on there. Yeah, it comes back to this incentive and reward structure right, around. Right. Yeah, but um, we're humans. So and, you know, like, uh, it's funny watching psychology uh, go through this because I think a lot of true aspects of human psychology are revealed in a lot of these conflicts and debates around which papers are replicating, which are not. And, you know, we it's really hard to see your work be challenged, even though, you know, science is kind of loftier than, like, ego. You know, it's like numbers are numbers and we're supposed to test them dispassionately. But it, it gets really hard because people, and also as the incentive structure works now, like your name is your work and, you know, some singular people are attached to ideas. Certain labs kind of get a lot of money for a single idea that becomes like their trademark thing. And it's really hard to separate yourself from it. And people have books and businesses, sometimes consulting businesses built up around whatever this special idea is, and, yeah. Then, yeah. and then you slowly... Well, yeah. So, what, I mean, so what's, an, really, what's an example of that? Uh, well, the Amy Cuddy, I think, Let's, let's name names. <laughs> Who's Amy uh, Cuddy? Uh, she was a Harvard... I believe she was a Harvard uh, psychologist, and this is... You've heard of power posing. This is, this is like the classic example, and I actually think she kind of gets an undue amount of attention because, like I said, a lot of these practices were really commonplace, and the, the paper she and her colleagues published on power posing, which is the idea if you make it this big, expansive gesture, you actually feel more powerful. Even more than that, they purported to find evidence that, you know, levels of hormones would would surge in, in relation to that. And this was a study done on about 40 college students and just kind of like a classic example of how small small studies can find false positives. And she got on the TED Talk circuit. She wrote a book about this. Like she made a brand out of this. And I think she attracted a lot of negative attention, not only because these 
this signature um, psychological study that she did uh, failed in replication and continually fails in replication. But because she like drew a lot of attention for it, you know, I suspect there's some misogyny involved with, you know, just singling out this one woman who, you know, if you read some attacks or not attacks, but if you read some criticisms of Amy Cuddy's work and some blogs, like they, they really do get very mean and they do like assuming a lot of um, like she was just like, trying to make money off of this idea, which might be true. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of debate about how to talk about replication issues. Yeah, there's a really good feature uh, that the New York Times Magazine wrote last fall on Amy Cuddy that I'll put in the show notes. And because one of the things that it really illustrates is that as a lot of conversations that society or particular groups of people have had about systemic problems, those usually start with pointing out particularly egregious examples of failure and kind of going after those. You know, it's the, it's the Harvey Weinstein thing, right? Where like it takes one particularly egregious example for people to start asking the questions about what are the structures that make this possible? But the difference in this case from, you know, the Me Too movement or from, for that matter, you know, systemic looks into kind of policing after you have cases of, you know, cops using racial slurs or that kind of thing is that instead of the people who are under attack first being exponents of being like the people in power who took advantage of the system, they're people who were playing by what were the rules at the time. And it's taken kind of pointing to them as failures to get those rules changed. Although, (laughs) I mean, you know, I mean, in her case, right, I mean, like one reason this blew up is just that like I think you can sort of understand with anybody like you're doing an experiment that you can do right with the resources that are available maybe the sample's not great maybe it's not huge you find a result you try to get it published right but then I think like a a sane person even when you like believe in your work and like think you you've done it well you've played the rules would still have a certain amount of humility about a result, right? And it's like to go to town in the way that certain people do based on one particular experiment, there does seem like there's something a little egregious about that to me. Like as a journalist, I have sometimes, you know, gone to press with like one random study or write-up of this weird thing that like I thought I had a good headline on uh, and did not do like the greatest amount of due diligence imaginable for it. But like before I like wrote a book, I would try to like dig in a little harder than than on one post. And and that's what struck me about some of these things. You know, like it's like it's one thing to like get a study published without having replicated it 12 times or whatever else. It's another thing when you see like endless mountains of like hot takes piled upon each other all based on one thing when like you know you've never gone back and checked it. I mean, I don't know. Matt, really like I feel like our experience as journalists actually puts us in a very good position to understand how when you're making – kind of drawing conclusions on your own, your calculus may be different from when you know there's a particularly strong professional incentive to develop a particularly strong formulation of that opinion. Oh, no, no, I mean, I totally understand <laughs> why it happens. I'm not, I'm not like baffled. Well, to give one example, so I recently wrote about the marshmallow test, which it actually has origins in the 1970s where you put a marshmallow in front of a kid and the basic test is like, 
you tell the kid, you can get two marshmallows if you're just patient, if you wait right. 15 minutes. So the follow-up work in the 90s found like a really striking correlation. Kids who are really good at this test in the 70s or 70s and 80s when it was administered tended to get better SAT scores. They tended to have like all these like benefits of just being patient as a five-year-old. Right. Um, and that kind of inspired this idea that, oh, if we can just teach kids patience – or character education, you know, they will yield benefits later on. It's like a great early intervention to help kids be better adults. And what was most amazing to me, so this big blockbuster paper came out in the 90s, hadn't been replicated until now. You know, this is like mm. nearly 30 years later. So Walter Michel, who's a psychologist who spearheaded those original papers, like he did things fine. <laughs> you know, people right. should have followed up on his work. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. With the, with the marshmallow paper, and I think the Amy Cuddy example, I, like, I remember seeing the marshmallow study on like 60 Minutes or something when I was a kid. And I think one thing that they both speak to is like the hype that we create around them, that like yeah, yeah, the yeah. Me media machinery imbues these findings with maybe more significance than they deserve, um, especially Matt Iglesias' hot takes on single studies. Just kidding. Um, no, but we we kind of build this hype around them, and um, and yeah, it's not definitely not always deserved. Well, this has whole changed the entire way you report studies, or your reporting is completely influenced by a lot of these changes going on in science, a lot of this recognition of of methods. yeah. You're you're very ethical. How, how do we no, do? No, no, how no, do we do responsible? No, but actually, it was yeah. Reporting on the evidence based medicine movement was kind of a a wake up call to realize like when we do these single study reports in health. Like, you know, you can find studies that say watermelons cause cancer, they prevent yeah. cancer, or avocados are like the elixir for a long life. I heard it's not. a superfood. Right. It's a superfood. They're all superfoods. So yeah, Vox started this series called Show Me the Evidence, which was kind of trying to take a more systematic approach to looking at research evidence. And instead of relying on single studies, trying to look for systematic reviews, which are 
I'm sure every member of the Weeds audience will know there are collections of studies on a certain question that come to more fully supported conclusions, and the studies are weighted by their rigor. We've been trying to do that at Vox, and it's in a direct response to that problem of, you know, if you look at, like, the New York Times archive on, like, vitamin E, you'll see vitamin E, you know, prevents this, and it causes that, and maybe you should take more, take less, and that's the result of reporting on single studies. I mean, so, this is a an area where, like, I have come to appreciate some of the virtues of, like, partisan politics and people having their heels dug in that, like, on certain issues, right, like like on minimum wage and its impact on, on jobs and employment, like, precisely because it's such a hot-button political controversy, every time there's a new study, there's, like, another counter-study. And there's, like, lots and lots and lots of work on this. And, like, I think as a fair-minded person, it's a little bit hard to know, like, what the truth is. But you can rest assured that it's not, like, a unexplored topic. Or, like, one guy came up with a single clever experiment sometime, and then we all just ran with it because it sounded cool. But, like, one of the issues with the power poses, right, is it's, like, there's no one invested in like anti-power pose, right? right? So it's like one thing comes up, it generates a couple like hypey journalism stories, it catches some people's fancy, it plays to like a certain kind of prejudices, right? Because like we would all love it to be the case that there was like an answer as simple as that, Right. right? And like it's not naturally anybody's incentive to be like, no, like I'm fanatically committed to like slouchy body posture and I'm going to like throw all my work at it the way there is in more politically contested type issues, right? And it seems like you really have this in health, right, where it's like every food group has its own like lobby, right, that's like – Find me some reason why this thing is awesome. Yeah, nutrition research is notorious for this. And also, yeah, research into drugs where um, you have, yeah, big incentive structures from the drug companies or from the Blueberry Council. Like, this is why, do you remember when we were probably all teenagers, like, blueberries became a superfood? Mm -hmm. It was because blueberry sales were flagging in the Blueberry, I think it's called the Blueberry Council. They started to invest in antioxidant research and get out this idea, in, especially in the media, by producing these studies that if you eat blueberries, you know, you have more exposure to antioxidants and therefore you're going to live longer and have better health outcomes. I'm very convinced can, that this is true. Is and it not I, true? Would find, I don't know what antioxidants are, but I'm... You can oh, they find, stop you from very, oxidizing. Yeah, <laughs> they keep my oxygen away, right? You yeah. can find, but you can find like, yeah, the Tree Nut Council and the Walnut Council. Big and cranberry. Why are big these cranberry, people not podcast towel, advertisers? Big paper towels. Oh, you that's my favorite. The, the paper towels versus uh, hand dryers. Wait, what is this? What? Big paper towel has been <laughs> investing in research to show that hand dryers disseminate a lot of bacteria when you use them. Sorry, the um, the automatic hand dryers and bathrooms. Oh, they, they, they blow hot air? They blow hot air, yeah. Yeah, And this is a little separate than than some of the replication issues that we've <laughs> been talking about. But no, the, the source of funding for a study is also a source of bias. And it's mm-hmm. a source that – and it's a sign that whatever thing you're studying there may not replicate. Like the goal of this whole movement, as has been explained to me, is not to like necessarily go through study by study and like, you know, shame people or shame studies. But it's to find out like what makes – for a replicable science? Like, what are the components of scientific studies that 
when you have all these components in place, like you feel good that this result is more likely to replicate than if you had just used the old ways. So and, what does that look like? Like I, I'm super enthused about like getting into like some of the kind of what what are the new structures that people are building to increase their rigor in their fields? Yeah. So one is pre-registration, and this is a really simple idea that you just commit to a plan. So it's saying, I'm going to recruit this many people. We're going to do this test. We're going to study this variables. This is how I plan to analyze it. And you submit that to a public forum for people to read and scrutinize, and, and it's there. You know, you've limited your freedom in making a false result more, more so, likely. So what kind of specific things does that then rule out? So I've pre-registered my experiments. So now, like, what what can I not do? It answers that problem of, like, yeah, you're studying 10 variables, and you can't just pick whichever one has the favorable finding in the end and say, that was the important thing after the fact. So, for example, if you're going to run a study on Alzheimer's, you're going to say that, you know, this certain effect in the MRI is what's important to me, and maybe this result on some test of cognition is important to me. And the other things are secondary outcomes. They're less important. We're really going to focus on those two. And we're going to look at those two after a certain number of months. Mm -hmm. So what matters is the measure of X and Y at 12 months. Because and if so I, then you, don't, you, can't so you can't run the study out to 18 months and find positive effects then and say, okay, no, this is now what we were really after. You have to determine in advance what a meaningful – you're trying to find what's a meaningful test mm -hmm. and declare that openly – and have it on the record so that other people can hold you to account. And if you run 20 tests, like you have like a, a probability of each test giving you a false positive. So if you the more tests you run, like the more likely you're going to just find one that's giving you a false positive. So it's a way to constrain you to say like this is what I'm going to do. This is exactly what Julia said. So right, cuz like in a standard like statistical significance test, right? You're saying like there's less than a 1 in 20 chance that this could be a random. Oh, do you want to talk about p values? Well, I think we should, right? Because <laughs> that—that is not what—that's uh, not what that does. All right. Well, whatever it does. <laughs> yeah. Well, but no. But so it's—it's it's like if I have infinite degrees of freedom right. on yes. what the dependent variable is, right? It's like as the number of dependent variables I look at explodes. Yeah. Like the odds of finding spurious correlations go way, way, way up. Yeah. So in these registries, you're supposed to say what the primary outcomes are. So you have to pick a couple that you're focusing on right? and then say that those are the outcomes that matter and we're looking for results in those outcomes. But these registries are just one of the solutions people have come <laughs> up with. There are many. Ooh, what Ooh. other ones? Ooh, what are the other ones? I like so, many solutions. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. 
Questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropG Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so I guess another big thing is trying to do, again, systematic reviews. So instead of relying on single studies on a certain clinical question or th- these are systematic reviews are also happening in social sciences, you're going to take all the studies that you can find. Some of them also look for unpublished research as well. Mm. And you're going to take all of that and see where does the truth lie, like where what, in what direction are yeah. most of these studies leaning? And these these meta-reviews, if they're done right, they can account for that publication bias we're talking to or at mm-hmm. least assess it. So there has been this cutoff of statistical significance at like P equals or less than 0.05. And very strangely, a lot of studies tend to have p-values of just under that. Like, yeah, and like, he, yeah. he quantified um, it was like 95%. Yeah, and that's really suspicious because if you try to figure out like how often you should find a p-value of 0.05 if your result is correct, you actually shouldn't find that very awesome. You should find like much, much lower. In any case, it, it's just really weird in science when all of the p-value, reported p-values tend to hover around the cutoff. It's like, you know, everyone's <laughs> trying to get to like right under the limbo pole. So, so yeah. you're saying like that suggests that in the aggregate there is massaging yes. of the data, right? That like a good experiment might be right under the threshold, but it should it could be over the but, threshold right, too. But, yeah. but, but plenty of good experiments should be way past it, right? Or nowhere in the neighborhood. But if everything is like just on one side of the dividing line, that suggests that a lot of things were maybe coming out on the wrong side. And then you're tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. And as soon as you get across the cutoff, you're like, all right, I'm done tweaking. That's exactly right. And and the good meta-analyses will like really try to dig into that to see if that if there's that suspicious numbers of like, oh, there's a suspicious number of studies that all are just they just cross the threshold and that's that's a right. So you're saying like in a good meta-analysis, you don't just like summarize the conclusions of the literature, but you might say, looking at this whole literature, it kind of looks problematic. Yes. Right. And, and also, or also, like, here are the particular studies in this literature that, like, are the gold standard versus here's a lot of dross where, like, they're clustering around a particular thing. I, you know, I, I dealt with this years ago when I was writing about uh, false rape reports. And there was just so much range in that because there were so many different experimental protocols and, like, good lit reviews were going, well, you can trust the study that had, like, asked 17 rape victims in England, or you can trust the study that like actually, you know, surveys a lot of people. Totally. Yeah. And um, yeah, the, the one thing that they're supposed to be doing is looking at the research methods, which is what you're getting at. And and since there's been more discussion about the replication crisis and need for reproducible research, there's a whole field that's been spawned called meta-research and their whole raison d'etre is just doing research on research and running statistical tests on hundreds of studies and trying to see, you know, is the randomization in these studies plausible or not? Does it look too good to be true? Um, that was another big replication crisis that happened recently with the Mediterranean diet studies. Oh, no. Yeah. Even the but, Mediterranean diet. Yeah. So, no, it's a good—I think it's still generally agreed to be a pretty healthy diet, but— 
There was a big randomized control trial of the Mediterranean diet that was considered like the gold standard test of this diet, and it involved randomizing people to either the Mediterranean diet with extra nuts, so they were supposed to eat more nuts, Mediterranean diet with extra olive oil or a control group. And um, this anesthesiologist in Britain, he ran a statistical test on something like 5,000 studies, including this gold standard Mediterranean diet study called Predimed. And he found that it and a bunch of others had flaws in the randomization process. He found other problems too. Anyway, it ended up leading to a whole um, reanalysis of the Predimed study, this big Mediterranean diet study. And the researchers spent months poring over their data. They found indeed that there were massive problems with the way people were randomized. Uh-oh. And so the New England Journal of Medicine ends up retracting the study and publishing a reanalysis of the results. And I think that gets to what Brian was talking about earlier with like what happens when you're so invested in an idea and like the psychological quirks that it might reveal. Like th- this was a landmark study for the New England Journal. There was a lot of, I guess, criticism about how they handled the PrediMed retraction and rebooting, whether they were a bit too lenient because they allowed the study to be republished with some finessing of the data, basically, and uh-huh. and sort of said the conclusion was still these results hold up and this is still, you know, a robust study. And yeah, it raises questions about when a journal is really invested in an article and mm-hmm. did so much to put it out there in the world and to, you know, promote it, what, what happens then so, when so, it falls down. So, like, Given all of that, you know, what can, like, Weeds listeners who probably most of whom are not on the board of the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, and if y'all are... If you are, email us. Yeah, totally. I'd love to hear from you. But, you know, as kind of consumers of knowledge broadly, people who, like, might hear about scientific papers from journalists who might, like, occasionally look at one once in a while, who might assiduously download every Weeds white paper every week and now is going to be, like bombarding us with emails about the various ways that the white paper massaged the results. You know, what are the kind of takeaways about what you should be trusting as good science or not so good science? Just read Julia's work and you'll be covered. Work. <laughs> no, I think one one thing is to understand that breakthroughs are really, really rare. And that when you hear something, you know, this is a breakthrough result and like we might have found, I don't want to be to sound super cynical, but Again, sorry, everything goes back to John Yanides, but he literally studied this. He looked at, like, papers in the top, I think, five high-impact journals that declared that a drug that had been discovered was a breakthrough. And then he tracked them over, I think, something like 10 years to see what actually ended up getting onto the market and becoming widely used, like what actually was a breakthrough. So out of 25,000 studies that he identified— only 27 of these drugs that were supposed to be breakthroughs actually ended up going through clinical trials, and only one ended up being used by a lot of people. So when you hear about a big breakthrough, put on your bullshit detector because there's a very good chance that it won't end up becoming one. And then, yeah, don't rely on the results of single studies. Look for systematic reviews. Try to get a sense of where 
does the truth on this matter lie? Like, where is the research in agreement or not? And then if you really dig into a study, there are some things to look for, too, that, like, one and another solution to this whole replication crisis that we were talking to is uh, publicly available data. So it's supposed to be, and this will be good for science, if more and more researchers just put whatever data they had collected just on the internet for anyone to access or if they, if there's some privacy concerns like they should just make it accessible you know with with few hoops to jump through and like as a consumer like you don't actually need to go to that data but it's just nice knowing that like anyone can analyze reanalyze the data set and y- you have a sense that like the researcher isn't like trying to hide anything as much um, and to also- be clear as a consumer who like is not versed in statistics, you probably should not be going into raw (laughs) scientific data. Like, this is a thing that I think can go a little too far in terms of skepticism. Like, just like it's unlikely for a scientist to have a breakthrough, it's super unlikely that, like, Joe X will be able to interpret stuff better than the people who wrote the oh, paper. Oh, yeah. Well, all I'm saying is, like, it's just nice to—it's yeah, yeah, just yeah. It's a good sign no, it's, when it's, people— it's good to, like, yeah. know that other people who do know things can check their work. And then you probably want to look at vested interests behind— a study or a claim that's being made. So, you know, is Big Paper Towel really bankrolling this study? Or, you know, is it, we, we did a review of chocolate and cocoa research that was funded by Mars. Oh, I'm still Vox, mad at you about this. And we found that 95% of these studies came to, yeah, conclusions that were favorable to chocolate or cocoa. And no, no offense yeah. to Mars, but they do have a very strong vested interest in finding that cocoa will make you live longer and that, you know, it'll make your hair shinier and your nails stronger. So you're saying there needs to be a bunch more research into chocolate to figure out and what we're the nominating okay, what, you as What if it's chocolate-covered blueberries? Then it will probably be very helpful to your health. Right? I'm going to have no like no compound. oxidation. I would, I would yeah, actually be entirely here for the systematic review diet in which Julia tells <laughs> us which particular foods. And like, of course, Julia is giving me a look right now because literally every time Julia writes a, something like this, the basis is there is no easy. all easy way out. Like, what do you call it? Skeleton key. Um, we sometimes, yeah, yeah, we sometimes call ourselves on the science team the wet blanket pod or wet blanket group of Vox because no. I feel like, like, yeah, after every headline, it could be like womp womp. Yeah, this is, think- this is also why we don't let you on like standard <laughs> Tuesday weeds because, like, you know, we were talking recently about like the amazing gains of iodine, and that was based on census data. Like, that was you know pretty strong. But, you know, all it takes is like one methodological know-it-all and we don't feel so good about American progress The way I look at it in terms of like doing journalism is that like one, I don't know is a completely acceptable answer and a lot more common one than than you read about in science news a lot. But it's also okay because the questions are sometimes so much more fascinating than the answers. And, you know, if you look at how people have been trying to answer this question, you see how much effort. And so, Julia, like the basic question that, you know, is in nutrition research is like, what is the optimal diet for a human being? It's such a simple question. It's taken decades. Barely know much about it. Um, And that's cool. And like thousands of people have worked on this simple question. And it's spectacular that that we still don't know a great answer. And it's not because science is going to fail us. It's just because it's in- incremental. And, you know, like every true finding we have, like, you know, it's just like a gift we give to the future. And then they can better assess it and, and you know, go from there. Well, I, hope, I hope that's like yeah, one takeaway from the replication crisis, that it's not that science is broken and that, you know, it's in crisis. Scientific studies are 
by na- by their nature broken because they're made by humans and they're going to be flawed and the whole purpose of the replication crisis is to make things better and yeah we're going to learn fake. things it's not actually hashtag fake news fake science yeah and, and in any case like when somebody emits faults at least personally that's a person i trust so i trust people who are emitting faults in science Fantastic. And with that, you know, if you have any faults to admit out there uh, as listeners, you should check out the Weeds Facebook group, uh, a great place to confess <laughs> all of your own sins, uh, you know, whatever else. Tell us why our, our Tuesday white papers are, are nonsense, uh, other things like that. So I want to really thank Julie and Brian for joining us and helping us out on this. Uh, our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong, all of you out there in Weeds listening land. And we will be back on Tuesday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.